nuancing feminist perspectives on the voluntary intoxication defense by Florence Ashley, published in 2020 in the Manitoba Law Journal. Introduction. Accused of any crime, a person can be acquitted by proving that they were under the effect of a drug, including alcohol, to the point of automatism or severe psychosis. Automatism refers to a state in which a person has no conscious control over their actions and typically comes with subsequent amnesia. Psychosis will generally have the requisite severity if it precludes a person from distinguishing right from wrong. Where the drug is voluntarily ingested, the defense is known as a defense of voluntary intoxication. Long recognized in England before being rejected by the Supreme Court of Canada in 1977, the voluntary intoxication defense was reintroduced in Canadian law in 1994. The decision that reintroduced the defense, R.V. Davio, involved a 74-year-old man accused of sexually assaulting a 65-year-old woman who was partially paralyzed and used a wheelchair after having drunk excessive quantities of alcohol. The Supreme Court of Canada ordered a new trial, ruling that a person could be acquitted of any crime if intoxicated to the point of automatism or severe psychosis. The decision was met with intense public outrage and significant scholarly criticism. The government rapidly proposed adding Section 33.1 to the Criminal Code less than five months later, prohibiting the voluntary intoxication defense in cases involving violations of physical integrity or assault. Since then, doubts have loomed over the constitutionality of the provision. Against June 2020 decision R versus Sullivan, the Ontario Court of Appeal declared that Section 33.1 was unconstitutional, allowing the two defendants to invoke the voluntary intoxication defense. One of the two defendants was acquitted, whereas a new trial was ordered for the other. Unlike Henri Davio, neither of the two defendants were drinking or charged with sexual offenses. Instead, both had suffered from drug-induced psychoses, leading to convictions of aggravated assault for David Sullivan and of manslaughter for Thomas Chan. The decision is binding on other courts in Ontario and will likely be seen as persuasive in other provinces and territories. As was the case following the previous decisions in validating Section 33.1, the public's reaction to the judgment was profoundly negative, accusing it of reflecting an anti-feminist and a pro-rape culture position. The Women's Legal Education and Action Fund claimed that it, quote, risks sending a dangerous message that men can avoid accountability for their acts of violence against women and children through intoxication, end quote. Reactions on social media were particularly strong, mirroring unnuanced headlines such as, quote, a whole pass for rape, end quote. Although allowing voluntary intoxication defenses may turn out to be anti-feminist because it facilitates sexual assault and intimate partner violence and contributes to a culture of impunity around them, 
An informed outlook on the issues raised by this area of the law reveals important nuances that makes the debate substantially more complex. Nuances have been lost in public discussions surrounding the Sullivan decision. Productive nuances. In the hopes of guiding our conversations forward on the feminism or anti-feminism of the voluntary intoxication defense, I offer a review of the defense and of how it is used, followed by an examination of two critical issues relating to abolishing it. One, the criminalization of mental illness, and two, the weakening of criminal law standards. Part A. What is the voluntary intoxication defense, and how is it used? To understand the voluntary intoxication defense, it's crucial to understand the principles that lie behind the defense, what kind and what standard of proof must be met to succeed in using it, and how often the defense is used and successfully used. The voluntary intoxication defense functions to limit the punishment of those who have little to no moral culpability. It is extremely difficult to prove and is rarely used successfully, especially when it comes to alcohol. Section 1. The Principles Behind the Defense Only the morally guilty can be punished, and only in some degree of proportion to their guilt. Although the principle knows of many exceptions and outright failures, it has been the driving concern behind the modern law of voluntary intoxication. One of the concerns at the heart of Davio was the idea of taking the intention of getting drunk and holding it as an adequate substitute to the intention to commit the criminal act in question. Where the consequences of getting drunk are not foreseen, let alone intended, there is no common measure between the intent of intoxication and the intent of the crime itself. The risks of psychosis and harm to others are mm, rarely foreseen. Holding otherwise in the eyes of the court would have jeopardized the principle that there must be some proportionality between moral culpability and punishment. It gives me pause that the correctness of the legal precedent disallowing the voluntary intoxication defense was first called into question at the Supreme Court level by Justices Bertha Wilson and Claire Leroy-Dubé, respectively the first woman and most vocal feminists on the Supreme Court bench. Even if one accepts that the getting intoxicated to the point of automatism or severe psychosis is morally reprehensible, voluntary intoxication is intertwined with the problem of moral luck. Automatism and psychosis caused by intoxication are far more common than are instances of violence committed while in a state of automatism or under severe psychosis. There is little readily certainable difference between those who gravely hurt others and those who do not. While propensity for violence could be conjectured, few people would not resort to violence under any situation whatsoever, and hallucinations during severe psychosis are hardly controllable. As I will detail later, David Sullivan seemingly believed that he was defending himself against evil aliens when he stabbed his mother and ran away when he realized that he was wrong. Moral luck poses a problem for the criminal law, 
people with the same intent, making the same plans, and acting the same way can lead to vastly different consequences. Although the problem of moral law arises throughout the criminal law, it is magnified in the context of voluntary intoxication because of the often remote nature of the foreseen risk and the sheer disproportion between the moral culpability associated with the relatively mundane act of getting drunk or high and the moral culpability associated with mass slaughter or with sexual assault. I suspect that many readers will have taken recreational drugs in a quantity sufficient to occasion psychosis at some point in their lives, but were lucky enough to have a pleasant time instead. Section 2. Proving the Necessary Level of Intoxication The voluntary intoxication defense is a bit of a misnomer. The question is not so much whether the person is intoxicated, then whether they have reached a mental state akin to automatism or to severe psychosis. As mentioned earlier, automatism is a state in which a person has no conscious control over their behavior, whereas severe psychosis involves a misperception of the world that prevents the person from distinguishing right from wrong. Oftentimes, the person invoking voluntary intoxication has a pre-existing neurological predisposition or vulnerability, and the mental state is more accurately said to be triggered rather than caused by the intoxication. However, the verdict of not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder, which is normally available to those who experience automatism or a severe psychosis due to mental disorder, will oftentimes be unavailable in cases involving voluntary intoxication, the test being whether a similarly situated person that does not have the neurological predisposition or vulnerability could have fallen into automatism or severe psychosis from taking the same dose of the substances. The fact that someone without the disposition the predisposition or vulnerability could have been in a state of automatism or severe psychosis from the drug prevents a finding of not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder, even if the automatism or severe psychosis of the actual defendant would not have occurred if not for their neurological predisposition or vulnerability. In Sullivan, as is frequently the case, part of the debate involved with Thomas Chance's trial was whether his psychosis had been caused by the drugs he took or was instead attributable to his brain injury. Although he may have been more likely to experience a severe psychosis from taking psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, the fact that someone without a brain injury could also have had a severe psychosis from the same dose, although it wasn't known in this case, prevented him from successfully using a mental disorder defense and left him with only the voluntary intoxication defense. Where the line is being drawn seems unfair. It's not easy to prove extreme intoxication, which must be done when using the voluntary intoxication defense. In the words of the Supreme Court in Davio, quote, it will only be on rare occasions that evidence of such an extreme state of intoxication can be advanced, and perhaps only on still rarer occasion is it likely to be successful, end quote. The defendant, Henry Davio, had 
seven or eight beers and a whole liter of brandy. His blood alcohol levels were around 0.4 to 0.6%, which is five to seven and a half times the legal driving limit of 0.08%. Most people would be either in a coma or dead with that much alcohol. It's not altogether clear whether that was enough for an acquittal. However, since the new trial ordered by the Supreme Court was never held, However, the Ontario Court of Appeal in Sullivan suggested that he would likely have been convicted because scientific evidence shows that alcohol probably cannot lead to extreme intoxication at all. Normally, the criminal law only asks for a reasonable doubt to acquit someone. However, you cannot be acquitted just by showing that extreme intoxication is possible enough to raise a reasonable doubt. The standard of proof is elevated in those cases, and the defendant must show that they were extremely intoxicated on a balance of probability. In other words, they must show that automatism or severe psychosis due to intoxication is the most plausible interpretation of the evidence, not only a reasonable one. And unlike the usual approach in criminal law, it's not the prosecutor's job to prove that the defendant was not extremely intoxicated. Instead, it's the defendant's job to prove that they were. How likely it is that the defendant was in extremely intoxicated depends on how much of the substance they took, and it will be very difficult to argue voluntary intoxication defense if you are unable to prove how much alcohol or drugs you took. The law also requires expert testimony to prove that the intoxication would reach the level of automatism or severe psychosis. The defense does get thrown out when the defendant does not have an expert or when the expert is not convincing. In most circumstances, the expert will be a pharmacologist or a toxicologist and the government will usually hire its own expert to contradict the expert of the defendant. In the current state of science, there is serious doubt as to whether alcohol by itself can lead to automatism or to severe psychosis. According to Harold Kalan, a professor of pharmacology and an expert on alcohol and drug tolerance, there is very little evidence that it does. In his view, Quote, there is no scientific evidence whatsoever that automatism is directly caused by alcohol intoxication alone, no matter how severe the intoxication. The problem with the idea that alcohol causes automatism, as opposed to the idea that it can trigger it in someone who already has a neurological condition, is that alcohol impacts all nerve cells at the same time. The nerve cells that are responsible for consciousness and those who are responsible for coordinated movements both decrease their activity at the same time and at the same speed. This effect of alcohol on brain cells is called the central nervous system depression. And alcohol is different from a lot of other substances because it does not selectively depress the, nervous, the central nervous system. 
That is to say, it doesn't select one part of the brain to affect more than others. As a result, being drunk enough to lose consciousness also means being drunk enough that you cannot do complex coordinated movements. If you're drunk to the point of losing consciousness, you might have simple, uncoordinated, purposeless, and repetitive movements, but you cannot have a series of movements that happens in sexual assault. Complex movements can happen with automatism, but usually it's automatism from resulting from dissociative states that are very different from the kind of automatism that is caused by alcohol. A review of studies on alcohol blackouts showed that there is a strong negative relationship between alcohol and the ability to form memories, but that there is very little evidence that alcohol can have negative impacts on cognitive functioning. On the contrary, studies showed that people in a blackout state had higher cognitive functions and could engage in social interactions. So even though automatism comes with amnesia, Alcohol-induced amnesia does not seem to come with automatism. Alcohol can trigger automatisms and psychotic symptoms in other more complicated ways, but the symptoms are quite different. So first we have what is called alcohol idiosyncratic intoxication, where someone ingests a very small amount of alcohol and undergoes a very marked behavior change, which is usually aggressive, violent, and or self-harming. This may also come with visual hallucinations. Now, not everyone agrees that alcohol idiosyncratic intoxication does exist, but what is most important to note is that it would be triggered by an unusually small account of alcohol and doesn't come with the slurred speech or lack of coordination that is common when people are severely drunk. The second thing we can have is what is called a complex partial seizure of the temporal lobe of the brain, which can cause violence, uh, violent and or psychotic behaviors. Uh, it, only, it usually only lasts a few minutes and is followed by deep sleep, and the automatist uh, automatic behaviors themselves are, quote, simple, stereotyped, unsustained, and never supported by a consecutive series of purposeful movements, which also distinguishes it from uh, with alcoholic blackout. Third, people can have what is known as alcohol-induced psychotic disorder. The disorder typically follows a period of prolonged heavy drinking, and lasts even after the person becomes sober again, typically clearing up within one to six months. The most prevalent symptom is auditory hallucinations. And fourth, alcohol can also precipitate the development of mental health conditions that cause automatism or severe psychosis. The person in these cases has an underlying undeveloped mental health condition that is brought to the surface by alcohol. Depending on the condition, it may not be obvious outside of episodes, but there will typically be symptoms of some kind that stay afterwards, such as other episodes of automatism or of psychosis. Blacking out while severely drunk tends to look quite different 
from these four conditions. The archetypical picture of someone who is severely intoxicated is slurred speech and poor coordination with no symptoms that indicate automatism or psychosis remaining the next day. Meanwhile, sexual assault requires a series of complex actions. Each of those elements are contradicting one or multiple of the common features associated with alcohol idiosyncratic intoxication, complex partial seizure, alcohol-induced psychotic disorder, and precipitation of an underlying mental condition. So, in a way, evidence that someone is drunk actually makes the thesis of extreme intoxication less rather than more plausible. It's precisely this kind of reasoning that led to the conviction of Cameron McCaw after the judge in his case had declared Section 33.1 unconstitutional. If you had been in a case of uh, in a state of alcohol-induced extreme intoxication, reason Justice Nancy Spies, he would not have been able to sexually assault the victim as he did since it involved a complex series of steps. According to the judge, he might have been back out, but that did not mean that he was extremely intoxicated. Based on his actions, the scientific evidence suggested that he was not extremely intoxicated and he went to prison. A similar reasoning was also adopted in the case Doe versus R. To use the voluntary intoxication defense, the defendants must meet a higher than usual standard of proof fine and pay for an expert who will confirm that the circumstances are indicative of automatism or severe psychosis and fight against an uphill battle uh, against the entrenched scientific view that alcohol cannot cause automatism by itself. By arguing the voluntary intoxication defense, the defendant has to admit material facts like their presence during the crime and they cannot readily contradict the victim's account of the event, since automatism comes with amnesia. Admitting the facts and proving that it is more likely than not that they were that intoxicated will rarely be easier than simply denying the facts and hoping that the judge is left with reasonable doubt, unless there is damning evidence of these facts. This leaves little incentive to use voluntary intoxication as a defense in sexual assault cases. Section 3, Jurisprudential Statistics. Judges do not always apply the law correctly, and law in action can look drastically different from law on paper. In the wake of Davio, a major concern had been the impact that the judgment would have on acquittals. Professor Elizabeth Sheehy revealed three successful uses and one unsuccessful use of the voluntary intoxication defense in the half a year following the decision. All of them involved assaults or sexual assaults against women, and at least some of them suggested that the high threshold by the Supreme Court was not being followed. In one of these cases, the fact that spousal violence was, un was supposedly uncharacteristic of the defendant was used to support the conclusion of extreme intoxication, despite the fact that many men become violent when drunk without there being any automatism or severe psychosis. In the years since, however, 
successful or would be successful uses of the voluntary intoxication defense have been much rarer. I reviewed the cases referring to section 33.1 that came out between 1995 and 2020 when Sullivan came out. The entire period is of interest since the first cases declaring the law unconstitutional date back to 1999 to 2000. And many cases that do not declare section 33.1 unconstitutional nevertheless make findings as to whether the defendant was in a state of extreme intoxication. I found that the constitutionality of 33.1 was considered in 14 different files. It was ruled constitutional in five of them and unconstitutional in nine. A total of four defendants were acquitted or would have been acquitted if not for the finding of constitutionality. One of the would-be acquittals, dating back to 2000, involved sexual assault. The other three involved neither sexual assault nor intimate partner violence. Among the cases that did not consider the constitutionality of 33.1, two further acquittals would have resulted if it were not for the law. Neither of those two involved sexual assault or intimate partner violence. I've also found that five people were found guilty or would have been found guilty despite the declaration of unconstitutionality. In each of these cases, the people fell short of the level of extreme intoxication. R.V. McCaw that I discussed in the last section is an example. In another case, R.V. Jensen, the defendant was convicted of secondary murder after he presented a voluntary intoxication defense to both murder and manslaughter, meaning that he was far from the level of extreme intoxication since the threshold for reducing murder to manslaughter due to intoxication is much lower uh, because murder is a specific intent crime and thus only requires advanced intoxication rather than extreme one. Among cases that did not consider the constitutionality of Section 33.1, findings that the degree of intoxication did not reach or even sometimes remotely suggest extreme levels were exceedingly common and I actually found 50 such cases. The other five cases in the list merely allowed the defense to be argued, but I was actually unable to find whether they resulted in convictions or acquittals. Some led to acquittals for unrelated reasons. Various cases also did not consider the constitutionality of 33.1 and may have allowed the defense to be argued if it were not for it. A potential of six acquittals, only one of which involves sexual assault or intimate partner violence, over 25 years is a pretty small number, especially considering the much larger number of cases clearly indicating that the person would have fallen below the level of extreme intoxication, which, as we remember, is well over 50. But also, we must consider the limits of that statistic. Some of the new trials were ordered recently, so we don't yet know the outcome. Some judges and some defendants simply did not consider applying the defense because Section 33.1 precluded it, and 
they did not uh, did, didn't want to go through the cost of challenging the constitutionality of the law. And so we don't know if they would have led to an acquittal eventually. There may also be more acquittals that were not reported in the law databases that I used. Furthermore, not every charge leads to a trial and not every crime is reported. And so the statistics do not account for the impact that the defense can have on people's willingness to report sexual assault or on police and prosecutors' willingness to investigate complaints of sexual assault, issues that were identified as major concerns after Davio came out. Underreporting and under-investigation of sexual assault remains major problems in Canada. Even though it would be unreasonable to claim that the voluntary intoxication defense is only associated with a risk of six acquittals over 25 years, the fact that it's a very small number gives us a sense of scale for the problem that the defense poses in the context of sexual assault and intimate partner violence. In the same 25-year period, the legal database I used reported 5,459 decisions that cited the sexual assault provisions of the criminal code. What is clear from reviewing the court's decisions is that judges are not very receptive to the claim of extreme intoxication, especially in cases involving alcohol and or sexual assault and intimate partner violence. When courts consider the argument of voluntary intoxication, they're much more likely to consider that the intoxication was not extreme. These numbers are in line with the Supreme Court's suggestion in Davio, which was based in on the experiences of Australia and New Zealand, that allowing the voluntary intoxication defense would not lead to a significant increase in the number of acquittals, since extreme intoxication is difficult to prove and is extremely rare. At the same time, injustice cannot be encapsulated by mere numbers. Each wrongful acquittal is a blemish on the justice system, but as is each wrongful conviction, perhaps even more so. Each sexual assault, each case of intimate partner violence that goes unrecognized is a harm to the principles of feminism. Nevertheless, feminist perspectives on the voluntary intoxication defense need to begin from a place of knowledge. Although the voluntary intoxication defense may be morally or politically undesirable, there is little evidence of a severe impact on the numbers of acquittal in sexual assault and intimate partner violence cases. The case law suggests that the defense is rarely used and even more rarely used successfully, even though the constitutionality of Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, which prohibits the defense, has been in dire doubt since 1995. At the same time, these statistics cut both ways. Policy and political discussions of cases declaring 33.1 unconstitutional like Sullivan should be held under the illuminating shine of the current state of the law, science, and jurisprudence. Part 2. Criminalizing Mental Illness while Henri Davio does not readily attract much sympathy despite his alcohol addiction, the defendants of the most recent Uncarian case, Thomas Chan and David Sullivan, are a whole other matter. 
Thomas Chen was a high school student, took magic mushrooms while hanging out at his friend's at mother's house. It wasn't his first time. After half an hour, he was the only one that was sober in the group and took some more mushrooms. He suffered a psychotic break, which was characterized by erratic and violent behavior. He went outside, shattered the window of a car, of a car tried to fight one of his friends and yelled, this is God's will and I am God. Then he ran to his father's house nearby, and instead of getting in using the fingerprint recognition system, he broke into the house through a side window. His father was in the kitchen, but Thomas Chen didn't seem to recognize him, and he stabbed him repeatedly, causing his death. He then began attacking his stepmother, who testified that he did not seem to recognize her. She survived. At trial, evidence showed that Thomas Chen had suffered from a mild traumatic brain injury that had not healed by 2018, despite being first diagnosed in 2013. The injury was sustained due to repeated concussions during his rugby career, and it likely impacted his frontal and temporal lobes. However, the judge found that the link between his brain injuries and the toxic psychosis from magic mushrooms was insufficiently conclusive for his severe psychosis to be considered to be caused by mental disorder, and he received a five-year sentence of imprisonment for manslaughter and aggravated assault. For his part, David Sullivan was living with his mother and was prescribed Welbutrin to help him stop smoking. Psychosis is a known risk of the medication, especially among people who are susceptible to it. He sometimes took the drug recreationally and had previously experienced psychotic episodes on it. On the fated day, he took an enormous quantity of tablets, estimated at between 30 and 80, while attempting suicide. He experienced what the judges called a profound break with reality, and thought that he had captured an evil alien. His mother tried to reassure him that there was no alien in the room, but the drugs made him believe that she was also an alien. He was trying to mislead him, and he stabbed her several times with kitchen knives. She called out, David, I'm your mother! And when he heard that, he dropped the knives and ran away. She survived, and he was eventually convicted of aggravated assault and of assault with a weapon. Neurological vulnerability, prescription medication usage, and addiction are frequently in the background of voluntary intoxication cases. The role of mental health in both tragedies and the similarity of the facts to many cases that led to a verdict of not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder brings to the forefront the relationship between Section 33.1 with the criminalization of mental illness. I'm not suggesting that Section 33.1 criminalizes mental illness because mentally ill people are disproportionately violent or because a percentage of mentally ill people are incarcerated as a result of 33.1. People with mental illnesses, including psychotic disorders, are rarely violent and are much more prone to being victims of violence rather than perpetrators of it. The paucity of cases involving Section 33.1 
to prevent an intoxication defense that would otherwise have succeeded also means that the section plays only a small role in the overall pattern of the over-incarceration of people living with mental illnesses. Rather, I want to suggest three things. One, that the former unavailability of the voluntary intoxication defense for violent crime leads to the incarceration of mentally ill people for acts that are inextricably linked to mental health issues. Two, that disallowing the defense perpetuates a broader pattern of treating mental health problems as criminal rather than as healthcare issues. And three, that incarcerating mentally ill people, regardless of reasons, further entrenches the social inequalities that they experience because of the inadequate and discriminatory treatment that they experience in carceral facilities. Even though neither Thomas Chen nor David Sullivan were found to have experienced a psychosis as a result of an underlying mental health conditions, their stories would have looked wildly different had mental health aspects been taken out of the picture. Under the current state of the law, the defense of automatism or severe psychosis due to mental disorder will often be unavailable, even if the events would probably not have occurred without a pre-existing mental health or neurological issue, whether it was diagnosed or not. To use the defense when intoxication is involved, the defendant must convince the judge that the underlying condition did not just make them more likely to have an automatism or severe psychosis episode, but that someone who didn't have that condition could not have had automatism or severe psychosis. That legal approach is incompatible with the reality that many conditions only make automatism or severe psychosis more likely and that the drugs that they take have by themselves the potential to cause automatism or severe psychosis. Thomas Chan may not have had a severe psychotic episode if not for his brain injury, but the hard line set by the law between severe psychoses caused by neurological conditions and those caused by intoxication led to him being convicted nonetheless. I'm also left to wonder why he didn't have any further neurological testing between 2013 and 2018. Perhaps he would have refrained from taking hallucinogenic drugs had he known that his brain injury was still lingering. David Sullivan's mental health was also implicated in the form of his addiction and his suicidality. He was taking Welbutrin to deal with his smoking. The addiction was bad enough that he readily endured the occasional psychotic episodes that came as a side effect. As he took the medication recreationally as well, I wonder whether he might have been addicted to it. But most heartbreakingly, the psychotic break that led to him stabbing his mother actually arose out of a suicide suicide attempt, hardly a trivial fact. Were it not for his addiction and for his suicidality, there is little doubt that he would not have attacked his mother. Was he adequately supported during his treatment and in relation to his suicidality? Why was he still on medication? That gave him psychotic symptoms? What systemic failures led to him being suicidal and living with his mother while undergoing recurrent psychotic episodes? 
Harm is harm, regardless of whether the perpetrator is living with a mental illness. However, approaching harm caused by people living with mental illness with a mind to punishment instead of adopting a public health outlook lies at the heart of the criminalization of mental illness. As a society, we too often deal with mentally ill people as criminals, rather than as people in need of support and services. As a result, mentally ill people are grossly overrepresented in the carceral system, and their overrepresentation only worsens when we consider subgroups that are multiply marginalized, like mentally ill people who are women, who are black, who are indigenous, who are other people of color, or who are members of LGBTQ communities. The criminalization of mental illness is deeply intertwined with racism and is one of the ways in which the over-incarceration of Black and Indigenous people is perpetuated. Whereas white middle-class individuals have greater access to mental health services, including addiction treatment, Black and Indigenous poor people overwhelmingly do not, and instead they get targeted by police and funneled towards prison. According to the Canadian Correctional Investigator, quote, Canadian penitentiaries are becoming the largest psychiatric facilities in the country, end quote. Among federally incarcerated women, 4.6% had a current diagnosis of psychotic disorder and 6.5% of all incoming federal offenders in the Atlantic region had a psychotic disorder. The global prevalence of psychotic disorders is 0.46%, meaning that inmates are 10 to 14 times more likely to have a psychotic disorder than the general population. Female inmates also have extremely high rates of borderline personality disorder, 33.3%, which can come with psychotic features, and substance use disorders are exceedingly common across the carceral spectrum. This pattern of over-incarceration of mentally ill people disproportionately impacts people of color, especially those who are Black and Indigenous, because of higher mental illness rates in those communities and of the racially correlated over-policing and over-incarceration issues that are both linked to systemic racism and colonialism. Critical race and math studies scholars point out that this is not a flaw of the system, but is a feature that was built into it throughout history. Racism and colonialism are causes of mental illness. Instead of focusing on meeting the needs of people living with mental illness, Canada instead chooses to incarcerate them. Once incarcerated, the services offered are woefully inadequate. The demand for mental health services is far larger than the resources that are dedicated to them, a reflection of misplaced funding priorities. Despite the stated goal of rehabilitation, services are worse than those that are available outside of prison, which are already insufficient. Those who have the greatest mental health needs often hide their conditions out of fear of it being used against them, including by impacting their access to release. 
Fears that are understandable since anything discussed with therapists in prison goes into their file, and prisons are known to disproportionately place mentally ill people in solitary confinement. Upon release, people living with serious mental health issues are offered little support, and as a result, they rarely stay in contact with mental health services and frequently become homeless. Although Section 33.1 is perhaps a minor contributor to decriminalization of mental illness, it, it has a share in it, and it mirrors the policy approach of criminalizing rather than supporting mentally ill people. The events that have led to the charges against Thomas Chan and David Sullivan are unspeakably tragic, and the grave consequences of their actions will reverberate throughout their entire life of those who were implicated, as well as throughout the lives of their families and their friends. A whole community suffered is suffering and will suffer as a result. But incarcerating two people who have experienced grave psychosis against the background of neurological predisposition or of suicidality does not actually serve any peniological purpose. If the voluntary intoxication defense is a feminist issue because of its role in sexual and intimate partner violence, it's also a feminist issue because of its relationship to the criminalization of mental illness. Part 3. Weakening Criminal Law Standards To prove a crime, two elements must be present, the mens rea and the actus reus. The mens rea, or guilty mind in Latin, refers to the mental element of the crime, intent, knowledge, negligence, recklessness, etc., as taught to us by L. Woods in Legally Blonde. The mental element must be linked to what is known as the actus reus. The actus reus, which stands for guilty act in Latin, refers to the voluntary physical action or inaction that constitutes crime. To prove a crime, no matter the crime, both mens rea and Actus reus must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In the way that these states are understood by courts, automatism and severe intoxication remove both mens rea and actus reus, because a person can't have the intent required for mens rea, and in fact, they don't even have the minimal psychological element that makes a physical action voluntary in the sense required to prove the actus reus. Actions during automatism or severe psychosis are understood as unintentional and involuntary, not unlike if someone was controlling your hand in committing a crime. For as long as it remains the law's understanding of the scientific facts involved in automatism and severe psychosis, Laws that prohibit the voluntary intoxication defense pose a very real risk of carceral expansion. Section 33.1 can't be considered in isolation. We also have to think about how decrying the Sullivan case for disallowing convictions in circumstances where, at law, there is no mens rea or actus reus will impact other areas of the law and lead to even more incarceration across Canada. We can divide offenses into five 
categories based on how they relate to mens rea. Each category is considered morally graver than the following ones in the order. So at the gravest, number one, we have subjective mens rea. At the second one, we have penal negligence. Then less than that is regular negligence. Then at the fourth level, we have strict liability. And then at the fifth level, we have absolute liability. Subjective mens rea is the gravest, but also the most common type of offense in the criminal law. Subjective mens rea requires that the defendant have some sort of subjective mental state like intention, recklessness, knowledge, or willful ignorance. The type of mental state among those that will be required depends on the offense. Courts, as a rule of interpretation, presume that any offense in the criminal code requires a subjective mens rea. Then the second gravest category, after the subjective one, is penal negligence. Penal negligence is when someone acts markedly depart from how careful a reasonable person would have been in these same circumstances. The third gravest category is regular negligence, which means any departure, no matter how grave, from how a reasonable person would have acted in the circumstances. And it's most often used outside of the criminal law, such as when people sue each other for negligence in civil liability. The fourth level of offenses, strict liability, is closely related to the notion of negligence. When you have strict liability, the government only has to prove that the person has done the act. So they only have to prove the actus reus, and they don't have to actually prove the mens rea. The defendant then has to themselves show that uh, they either made factual mistakes or acted reasonably in the circumstances to kind of defeat uh, the offense. So in other words, you're kind of presumed to have been negligent and then you get to try to prove that you weren't. And then we have the lowest possible level of moral guilt, which is absolute liability. With absolute liability, the government only has to prove the act, the actus reus, and the defendant can't even reply that they made a factual mistake or acted reasonably. So far, the law does not recognize offenses that don't at least require proving the actus reus. But if it did, there would be a sixth level that would be even lower than absolute liability. Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is part of our Constitution, protects the, quote, right to life, liberty, and security of the person, end quote. As a result, the criminal law must follow a certain logic when it comes to mens rea. Imprisonment, which is the defining characteristic of criminal law, can only be ordered if it is in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. Over the years, the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized many principles of fundamental justice that directly relate to mens rea. The type of mens rea that will require, be required of an offense must be compatible with the stigma and punishment that attaches to it. 
crimes that are particularly grave and stigmatized like murder require a subjective mens rea. There are also limits for when different mental states can be substituted for one another. So for instance, in Davio, the Supreme Court said that proving intent to commit sexual assault couldn't just be substituted or switched out for proving intent to drink because depending on the circumstances, the former is not actually always a predictable outcome of the latter. However, proof of intent can generally be replaced by proof of recklessness and proof of knowledge can usually be replaced by proof of willful ignorance because the law sees them as morally related. They're sufficiently close in moral terms that replacing one for the other is authorized by constitutional law. Arguably, the most important principle and the one that provides the greatest protection against state oppression out of all the principle of fundamental justice is quite probably the principle that whenever incarceration is possible as a punishment for a specific offense, the offense must require some sort of mens rea. You cannot have absolute liability offenses which only require proof of actus reus. According to the Supreme Court in Davio, removing the voluntary intoxication defense is even worse than having an absolute liability offense because it doesn't just abrogate the need to prove this mental guilt, but actually removes the need to prove the actus reus itself since under how actus reus is understood, only voluntary acts can, uh, can fulfill proof of actus reus. Involuntary ones, kind of like sleepwalking ones or ones where your body is being controlled by someone else, don't fulfill the actus reus requirement. Of course, like other rights that are guaranteed by the Charter, Section 7 isn't absolute. Once you've established that a right was interfered with and, you know, that, 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 that the uh, offense goes against the principles of fundamental justice, the government can show that what they did is a limitation on civil liberties and human rights that is, quote, demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, end quote. This sort of justification is done by showing that the law aims at a pressing and substantial objective, that it is rationally related to that objective, that it impairs the constitutional rights as little as possible, and that there is a proportionality between the positive and the negative consequences of the law. If the infringement of the right is worse than not meeting the objective of the law, then the law is going to be unconstitutional. Laws that restrict rights guaranteed by the Charter are frequently found to be justified indeed and deemed constitutional as a result of this analysis. However, Section 7 has always been treated a little bit differently from most other Charter rights when it comes to justifying infringements because you can only violate Section 7 
by violating the principles of fundamental justice, something that is so important to the justice system that they are considered part of its foundations. Furthermore, incarceration is by definition taking away someone's liberty. So the very proposition that an infringement upon liberty, so taking away someone's liberty in a way that goes against the principle of fundamental justice, the idea that it could be demonstrably justified in a free society is itself kind of a peculiar idea. Can a society ever be free if it takes away people's liberty against the principles of fundamental justice? Judges have shared the suspicion of justifying infringements of Section 7, and since the Canadian Charter was promulgated in 1982, not a single violation of Section 7 has been held justified under Section 1 by the Supreme Court of Canada. Although the Supreme Court is open to the possibility that a violation could be justified, and it does still go through the justification analysis, it has long observed that salvaging an infringement of Section 7 would be really difficult. In Canada versus Bedford, then-Justice Beverly McLaughlin explained, quote, it has been said that a law that violates Section 7 is unlikely to be justified under Section 1 of the Charter. The significance of the fundamental rights protected by Section 7 supports this observation, end quote. Even though she expressly stated that it would be possible in some cases to do so, she also affirmed that Section 7 had a sort of special constitutional status. What would be required will depend on the context and on the law's objectives, but it has been suggested that where the law's objective is expediency, a justification would only be possible in circumstances like natural disasters, war, epidemics, or etc. Where the objective is to combat the risk of perpetrators of sexual assault, intimate partner violence, and other violent crimes being acquitted, the threshold to meet is difficult to estimate, but it will undoubtedly be very high. Declaring Section 33.1 constitutional would allow for convictions without a mens rea that reflects the particular offense, and indeed without either a mens rea or actus reus at all, which poses two significant dangers for the ongoing development of the law. One, it weakens mens rea requirements, and two, it weakens other principles of fundamental justice that are unrelated to mens rea. Weakening mens rea requirements by making greater room for lower levels of mens rea in proving offenses or by removing the need to even prove mens rea has potentially serious consequences. Absolute liability is not enough whenever imprisonment is possible, and strict liability still remains largely restrained to regulatory issues. By allowing convictions without mens rea under Section 33.1, the door is open to allowing convictions with lower levels of mens rea for other offenses, 
for instance, by allowing proof of mere negligence where intent used to be required. The objective of, filing, of fighting violence against women by ensuring that perpetrators are punished is a weighty and worthy one, but it's far from unique among criminal laws. The positive effects of Section 33.1 are very significant, but they're also not exceptional. And if courts find these effects to have a sufficiently to be sufficiently important to outweigh the fundamental requirement of mens rea, which goes to the very heart of the criminal justice system, then there are many other laws that run afoul the principles of fundamental justice that could be justified using similar reasoning. Finding a law on uh, to be constitutional creates a precedent, and judges must think about how they are creating precedent, and so must we when we comment on legal matters. Lessening the burden on prosecutors of proving a kind of higher form of mens rea is a risk for people who are poor, who are homeless, and or who live with mental illness and would also likely have an incidence on the over-incarceration of Black and Indigenous people. These groups are disproportionately targeted for offenses that are seen as, quote-unquote, less grave, but which still carry the possibility of incarceration. And it would be really tempting for the government, who wants to be hard on crime, to use strict or absolute liability. Women who live at the intersection of multiple factors of marginalization are particularly at risk because of racial profiling, because of the feminization of poverty, and because of the role played by sexism in the developing of mental illnesses. Some penal negligence crimes relate to children and disproportionately apply to women. For, for instance, it's a crime to fail to provide one's children with the necessaries of life. The recourse to the penal negligence standard of, quote, marked departure from what a reasonable person would do, end quote, already indicates an impetus towards making the offense easier to prove for the government. The impact of weakening mens rea requirements is difficult to predict and could have an impact on practically all aspects of criminal law. Since political will is the principal vector of change and is notoriously fickle, trying to predict what changes would follow may be a fruitless endeavor. And I do find comfort in the fact that in the last 25 years since Section 33.1 was passed, no radical change to the criminal law has been seen as far as mens rea is concerned. Still, the very real risk of Overcriminalization does not arise unless the constitutionality of Section 33.1 is confirmed by the Supreme Court or becomes firmly entrenched in the jurisprudence of appellate courts. Only then would the weakening of mens rea requirements be recognized by the law and prone to governmental abuse. Besides the principles of fundamental justice relating to mens rea, Section 7 of the Charter you know, the, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, guarantees an open-ended range of absolutely crucial protections. For instance, laws cannot be arbitrary, irrational, vague, or overbroad. 
people have a right to be tried and punished under the law that was enforced at the time of the offense when it was committed and not punished under a retroactive law or under the wrong legal provision. Minors are presumed to be less morally guilty than adults for their action. People have a right to silence that goes beyond the ones that are granted by other sections of the Charter. Police are obligated to take reasonable steps to preserve evidence, which may then be used at trial. People cannot be convicted of crimes where they acted under severe duress, a situation that is morally, that is morally tantamount to involuntariness. This latter principle was established after a woman was charged for importing heroin into Canada in the context of assault, of sexual harassment, and of threats against her mother. And last but not least, it also, protect, it also goes against fundamental justice for the effect of a law to be grossly disproportionate to the law's objective. The principle of gross disproportionality was used to strike down laws criminalizing sex workers and uh, laws that prevent government from disallowing safe injection sites. Many of these principles are essential pillars of a just society and have been used to hamper harmful government action. Governments routinely try to limit or to infringe upon human rights and civil liberties for what they believe to be the greater good. The judicial system acts as a safeguard, however imperfect, of these rights and liberties, calling the government to account when it oversteps the proper boundaries of governmental action. Section 7 of the Charter and its relative imperviousness to justification under Section 1 has been one of the most treasured bastions against government overreach. We live in an era marked by the rise of right-wing anti-democratic populisms that are rife with misogynistic elements and are characterized by the institutionalization of a neoliberal carceral pseudo-feminism that collaborates in the marginalization of the most vulnerable members of our society. Opening the door by weakening some of the most important provisions of the Charter, even for very good reasons, is a decision that cannot be taken lightly. Part 4. Conclusion Far from my mind is the suggestion that the voluntary intoxication defense is without critique, and nor do I wish to take a definitive stance in favor of its existence. As Heather Macmillan Brown, now a judge on the Saskatchewan Court of Queen's Bench, wrote when Dagio came out, it is, quote, impossible to escape questions of policy and competing rights, end quote, that spring forward from the voluntary intoxication defense at, quote, a time when Canada is struggling to cope with a plague of sexual violence, end quote. Her comments made 25 years ago have sadly not lost any of their pertinency. What I do hope to have shown, however, is that the defense of voluntary intoxication is not so terrible an idea that it can be dismissed half-handedly without any deeper analysis. 
the question of whether voluntary intoxication should constitute the defense and under which conditions it should do so is a complex one that requires a nuanced balancing between competing moral and policy considerations. As we consider our response to violence against women, a problem of pandemic proportions, we must adopt an intersectional outlook fueled by concern for the criminalization of mental illness and attuned to the disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system on Black, Indigenous, trans, queer, and homeless people. Those people who will bear the brunt of any relaxation of criminal law standards. For lack of a better place to make the remark, I would also like to point out that my earlier suggestion that the voluntary intoxication defense is less problematic than many think because it would have in, resulted in few acquittals over the last 25 year cuts both ways. The negative impact on sexual assault reporting by victims may outweigh the dangers of criminalizing mental health if very few mentally ill people would benefit from the defense anyway. If good versus evil language fails to capture the feminist tensions that surround the voluntary intoxication defense, the binary choice of maintaining it or abolishing it wholesale will likely also be misleading. These are serious options that must be considered, of course, but they're also far from the only ones, as the post-Davio legal scholarship has shown. The court in Davio itself gestured in that direction, pointing out that it was, quote, always open to Parliament to fashion a remedy which would make it a crime to commit a prohibited act while drunk, end quote. Although exploring policy options and making recommendations is beyond the scope of my paper, I would be remiss if I did not point out the three options that emerge from my analysis. First, Concerns over the criminalization of mental illness could be partially really alleviated by mending the difficult relationship between the voluntary intoxication defense, which is precluded by Section 33.1, and the verdict of not criminally responsible by reason of mental disorder, which is found in Section 16 of the Criminal Code. The burden of proving that people who do not share your mental disorder or neurological vulnerability would not have fallen into automatism or severe psychosis is prohibitively high and flies in the face of scientific reality, which speaks the language of risk factors, of predispositions, and of percentages. The evidentiary threshold should be revised to better correspond to this reality. Second, Alcohol could be targeted directly. Alcohol is frequently used by perpetrators of sexual assault, was the primary target of Paul's Davio commentary, and was clearly on the mind of legislators when they adopted Section 33.1. Yet, as we have seen, alcohol is also one of the intoxicants for which there is the least evidence of being able to directly cause automatism or severe psychosis. Alcohol could be singled out by outright prohibition by creating a presumption that it does not lead to automatism or superpsychosis, or by committing, combining both a prohibition and a presumption, for instance, by prohibiting the voluntary intoxication defense where alcohol is the only intoxicant 
and by creating a presumption that the combination of alcohol and small amounts of other drugs can, uh, did not cause automatism or severe psychosis. Third, the government could initiate an expert consensus process to establish an evidentiary baseline regarding which drugs can cause automatism or psychosis, under which conditions, and correlated to which symptoms. The report could then be integrated into the law as a mandatory consideration and serve as a shared language for expert witnesses in, in um, voluntary intoxication cases. These three options reflect the dual observations that one, narrow targeted limits on defense are more readily justifiable than broad categorical one, and two, no harm is done to the principles of fundamental justice if the defense is only prevented when automatism or severe psychosis is scientifically impossible. The eagerness with which people have taxed the Sullivan decision of being anti-feminist because it declared section 33.1 unconstitutional and restored the voluntary intoxication defense for violent crimes obscures the genuine complexity of the topic. We should switch out the narrow feminist lens applied by some in favor of an intersectional feminist lens that engages with the criminalization of mental illness and the importance of maintaining the integrity of principles of fundamental justice for marginalized communities. Doing this adds a layer of richness to our conversation and better equips us to choose from, from among the available policy options, which are far less binary than is sometimes shown to be. Whichever option might be best, it is a choice that deserves as nuanced and as complex of a reflection as the underlying problem is.